Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9. Joshua 9. You may have noticed something in our journey through the book of Joshua, and that it is a book of ups and downs. Amen? Anybody experience ups and downs in your Christian walk? You know, one day you have a victory, the next day it's kind of not so much, and the day after that it's kind of like, well, sort of. And then all of a sudden, there's something that really happens, and you're like, Lord, I need you. Joshua chapter 9 is a very interesting chapter, because it presents to us exactly how deceptive the enemy can be. Sometimes I think, as believers, we look at our lives in Christ, and we often forget that we're in a war. The children of Israel, actually, as we have seen, very frequently do that as well. And so in that sense, they're a type of our walk in the Lord as we walk our lives out here on this earth, as we attempt with all of our might to serve the Lord Jesus. They were just at Jericho, and then they go to Ai and they lose, and then after that they go back and they win, and now they're encamped in this place that was supposed to be a place of refuge for them, but they let their guard down. And this is both a warning and an encouragement to us tonight. We can't let our guard down. There is a real enemy That real enemy really hates you. He really desires to destroy you. And he absolutely will do anything he possibly can to get you to believe his lies. And we see that in very wonderful detail uh, here in chapter 9. So would you join me and pray? And we'll pick up uh, all of chapter 9 tonight. Father, we thank you. Lord, for your incredible work in our lives. And we would pray that as you speak to us, as you minister to us, as you encourage us, as you work in our lives, that we would understand the fierceness of the battle, that we wouldn't be deceived, that, God, we wouldn't buy the lies of the enemy, but rather be wise and know exactly what the will of the Lord is. And so, God, speak to your people tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Actually, we'll take the first 15 verses tonight. If you look at this passage, and as it begins in verse 1, you can see that though they have just had a couple of substantial victories now, the enemy doesn't give up. And it came to pass that when all of the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, this side would be the western side. So the children of Israel had wandered in the wilderness. They'd come across uh, what is affectionately known as the Sinai, the anvil of the sun. They had crossed over into what would today be modern day Saudi Arabia, 
and Jordan. They've come across from that land. They've now crossed the River Jordan. They've battled at Jericho. Uh, They've moved on inland a little bit. Uh, They have fought for Ai, and they're now at Gilgal. And in the hills and in the lowland and all of the coasts of the great sea towards Lebanon. And so as you enter the center of Israel, you come to the Jezreel Valley. Jezreel Valley, most of you know it as the Valley of Megiddo or Megiddo. It is this large inland valley that's about 190 miles long. Uh, It's generally about 20 miles wide and has a number of hills that are in it. And all along this valley are the really the most arable lands uh, of Israel. And today it's a modern farming area for the most part. And, but each one of the hills were covered with forests and each one of the forests provided cover. And the children of Israel have now taken up a, a, a refuge in Gilgal. They're not very far from being able to march to the sea, and they're not very far from going back towards the River Jordan. And here they encounter the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who had all heard about it. And they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. You may have heard the ancient axiom that comes from the 4th century Sanskrit written in the early times of Hinduism but the enemy of my enemy is my friend and it is interesting how the enemy will use other enemies to join together as they gain friendship one with another to fight against God's people. Uh, that is what we call the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's that threefold enemy that we face. And so the, the world, as we know it, uh, is not your friend. Television's not your friend. Media is not your friend. The world's monetary system is not your friend. Uh, even some people whom you call friends, probably in a biblical sense, are not your actual friends. They actually are more aligned with the enemy, and they might be trying to convince you to follow after the enemy's plans. The enemy is a large being, if you want to look at it that way. And he has lots of tentacles, and it goes into virtually every aspect of life. And so you can kind of see that these kings had gathered together to come against this common enemy, and that common enemy was God's people. Israel, those that were governed by God, the only ones who really knew the one true God at that time. Remember that their actual name means governed or governed over or lorded over by God. That's what Israel means. And so here comes this people who are attempting to live godly in a land that was given to them as an inheritance, and now they're going to battle with a very substantial, very real enemy who doesn't play fair. The enemy never plays fair. The enemy's not beyond using your spouse. The enemy's not beyond using your children. The enemy is not beyond using your own mom, your own dad, those people in your life who are closest to you, those ones that live in your neighborhood. And so as this passage unfolds, 
It is absolutely daft of us. It is completely mindless for us to not think that the enemy is still trying to wipe out the children of God. Now, you may be thinking, well, you know, I don't march around with swords and I'm not engaged in a, in a real battle, but you actually are. That battle is spiritual. It's not carnal. Our weapons are spiritual. They're not carnal. The enemy that we fight, the Bible says, is principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age. That there is a legitimate enemy, and that legitimate enemy is trying to wipe you out. It has a commander. His name is Satan. And so as we look at who he is and what he does, we get some clues from our Bibles. But the Bible does not give us a complete picture of everything that Satan does, everything that Satan is. It just gives us clues as to how he works. And so when we read our Bibles, we're going to find that Satan, that literal name, the transliteration from Hebrew to English, means adversary. It means accuser, means slanderer. He actually wants to accuse you. He wants to slander you, and he wants to come against you. So if you want to look at what the devil is attempting to do, he wants to accuse you, he wants to slander you, and he wants to come against you as a believer. Don't forget that. Because a lot of Christians actually fall into traps because they think that there is no real enemy. They don't think the devil's real. They don't think that there's such a thing as demons. They don't believe that there's forces of darkness. They have little clue that there's actually a war that's raging around you that's happening actually right now around this building. There are angels and there are demons. And they're real. You can't see them, but they're there. And so the enemy, in that sense, has to use some means to make sure that that attack actually affects you. So what's he going to do? It doesn't matter that there's angels and demons doing battle. He's actually after you. You're the target. The believer. And so what he does is he tries to destroy the things of God. The name of Baden. The Hebrew name is equivalent to destroyer. He's listed in the book of Revelation as the angel of the bottomless pit. Interesting to me that people often will ask me, well, why did God allow the devil to be, you know, in existence at all? What what was he thinking when he allowed that? Well, what he was thinking was he didn't create who we know as Satan as a evil being. He was created as an angel of light. He was actually good. He was actually a cherub. But the angels, just like human beings, have choice. They're able to choose whom they serve. And he chose not to serve the Lord. And so as we think about who he is, we know some of how he functions more than we know what he looks like. So when someone comes to you and says, you know, well, the devil's... No, he doesn't. He probably looks very much like us if he were to take human form because he's a deceiver. He's the father of lies. 
He isn't going to show up. I mean, let's be honest. If somebody walked through the curtain over there and they come out looking like we have the cartoon characters of the devil, we're all going to go, well, that's him. But because we know he's the father of all lies, John 8, 44, that's his chief tool. That's what he did in the Garden of Eden. That's the first way that we see him function. We know that what he wants to do ultimately is to lie to us. He wants to get us to believe the lie. And so as we look at the book of Ezekiel, as we look at the prophet Isaiah and how he wrote, the prophet Isaiah said, how you are fallen from the heaven, O day star, son of the dawn, how you cut down. And then he gives this I am statement there in Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 15. And then we find out actually what the enemy is after, what he wants to do, how he functions. He wants to ascend to heaven. In other words, he wants to rule in God's place. And so in that sense, he is not God's equal, but he is God's enemy. He wants God's throne. And in order to get God's throne, he's got a real battle on his hand because there are angelic beings that are not going to let him do that. And God himself is against him. And so there's a war that's going on. He furthermore says, I will set my throne on high and I will sit in the mouth of the assembly at the far reaches of the north and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high God. He wants your worship. Now let's be honest. If the devil actually came as the devil, very few people are going to worship him. But if the devil comes as wealth, or if the devil comes as power, or if the devil comes as fame, or if the devil comes as abject beauty, or if the devil comes in some way that seems appealing to your flesh, that is how he's going to get you to worship him. He's not going to walk up and go, hi, I'm the devil, I'm here to destroy you. But he may very well walk up, and if you follow me, I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. Exactly what he said to Jesus. And Jesus knew who he was. So he's a deceiver. He's not going to tell you what he's really after. He's going to try and tell you that he is for you. And so when the Bible describes him, Actually, Jesus himself says that hell itself was prepared for the devil and for his angels. It wasn't actually created for people. God never intended human beings to dwell in hell. He desires that all men should be saved and come to the knowledge of repentance. That's God's desire, God's plan. But in order for your choice to have any meaning, in order for there to be a meaning to the word believe, there has to be something for you to believe in and there has to be a choice to not believe. That choice is the devil and his realm. And so as we think on this particular situation, Israel was at previously Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and they had set up an altar there. And as they had worshipped at that altar, they were safe. They've now begun to march south down through the valley. And now they're meeting this group of kings who are ready to attack and just like the way you would think Satan would do it, he comes with an offer of peace. Well, you know, 
Here's what we want you to do. Well, you know, you put us into this situation. You know, the Bible says one of the greatest enemies of the church is knowing what your Bible says, but not actually knowing what it means. I can't tell you how many Christians I've talked to that can quote me chapter and verse, but have not got a clue what that verse actually means in context. They'll go, oh, well, you know, all Christians are supposed to be broke. You know, every, every Christian should be this or should be that. And they, and they go to some proof text and they pull it out of context and they say, well, thus says the Lord. And actually God didn't say that at all. The most vulnerable Christian is the Christian who does not know what their Bible actually says. They're just resting on, you know, I I went forward, I I gave my life to Jesus, I, I raised my hand. Look, that is a necessary step. But it's only the first step. There's a whole other part of the journey where that Bible in your laps becomes real to you. It becomes the sword it's intended to be. It becomes sharpened to the point that it is able to strike down the enemy both directions because you know what it means. You shouldn't be biblically illiterate while knowing what the Bible says. You shouldn't be able to find verses and not know why they're there. And so here comes the enemy. These city-states, these local rivals that come together for the purpose of trying to come against God's people. Look, let's be clear. Satan hates you being victorious. Satan hates restored marriages. Satan hates when your kids are walking with Jesus. Satan hates that you won't buy the lie. Satan hates the fact that you've turned off those TV shows you shouldn't watch. Satan hates the fact that you no longer drink. Satan hates the fact that you're giving up habits that will destroy your life. Satan hates the fact that you've cleaned up your language. Satan hates every good thing that's ever happened in your life. He hates it. It makes him nuts. And so when those good things happen, you can count on getting attacked. That's the way he works. He's going to try and convince you that that healing in your marriage wasn't real. He's going to try and convince you that you giving up that bad habit that was destroying your life was actually a wrong decision. Because now you're not going to have any fun. That relationship that you give up, well, that was your only chance. It's all downhill from here. Israel's greatest danger in this was not the confederation of armies. It was this small little band of men who had actually made it inside of their camp. Because God had promised to defeat their enemies, amen? But when you let the enemy into your camp, you're in a very new and very special kind of danger. You've made nice with him. He lives next door now. And so Satan comes, just as he did with Adam and Eve, as a deceiving serpent. The very thing that the Apostle Paul actually reminds us of there in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 
But the children of Israel were not wise and they were certainly not ready for the battle. Well, they thought because they had swords, they were ready. But don't you think if the enemy has any intelligence whatsoever that he knows where you have prepared and also where you have not? Be careful, church. The enemy's not so dumb as to attack you where you're strong all the time. He can attack you where you're weak, where you haven't prepared, where you aren't girded up, where the armor is not covering you. Some lessons from Gilgal and Gibeon, where the children of Israel now reside. Verse 3, but when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua or heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked, notice this, underline two words here, craftily and went and pretended, a.k.a. lied, to be ambassadors. Notice they didn't go get tanks. No laser-guided bombs. They, they didn't come up with a whole bunch of new, brand new, shiny swords and shields. They worked craftily and they pretended to be ambassadors, pretended to be peacemakers, pretended to be friends, pretended to be allies, pretended to be someone with good intentions. And so it is with believers when facing trials in this world. So often, we get in trouble because we believe the enemy's lies. And they took old sacks. Notice how they did this. Now, I got to admit, this is a pretty good plan. You can almost see them going to some shop in Hollywood and getting makeup and the whole thing. They took old sacks on their donkeys and old wineskins torn and mended and old patched sandals on their feet and old garments on themselves and all of the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. Now when you first read that, it kind of seems like, like what? But think about what they're doing. They're, they're trying to present a picture, a false picture. Gibeon's only 25 miles from the last camp that Israel was at, which was at Gilgal. So this is not like you know some monumental journey. If they walked at a good clip, they could make it one day if they started early in the morning. Probably as an army, it took them two days. But this next city, Gilgal, was on the list that Joshua was going to destroy. And so they're, they're basically going out to meet them before they ever get to their objective. And after the conquest and the, the other wars that have been going on, the things that the Israelites have done... They figure the best way, because every single time up to this point that Israel has won a battle, they actually went to the city and defeated the people in the city. And so the enemy's changing his tactics here. The enemy changes his tactics in your life. If something doesn't work the first time or the second time, he will try something new. He'll bring along a new person. He'll bring along a new habit. He'll bring along a new thing to attract you, to draw you away from the Lord. But never forget that he chiefly is trying to deceive you, exactly as these warriors did. 
They're faking it. They're pretending. They're like, oh, you know, well, we've traveled a long way. It's designed here to give the impression that they'd been on some long, difficult journey. They hadn't been on a long, difficult journey. They were just two hills over. They dressed up like this to make a first impression. It's like, we're so overwhelmed with your superiority that we have come to seek out your good favor. This is so how the enemy works in our lives today. He wants you to think he means no harm. He wants you to think he can be your friend too. He wants you to think he can camp out with you and you're going to be just fine. And an awful lot of Christians believe that lie. Look, let's be, let's be really clear. It's much easier to identify an enemy when the enemy's actually fighting you, isn't it? But when he's kind of being sly and crafty and deceitful, it's a little harder. Verse 6. Notice what they said. So here comes the Gibeonites. This is the chief group that's being involved in these. And so they went to Joshua, to the camp at Gilgal, And they said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country and now therefore make a covenant with us. Now I want you to notice something. They are using the word of the Lord against them. In other words, they had heard that this is what the people who believed in the one true God believed. They are using the word of God actually against God's people. So this is a perfect example of someone who knows what the word says, but doesn't rightly interpret it. And then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you will dwell among us. So how can, how can we make a, a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? And so they said, from a very far country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of this fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, to Og, the king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. And therefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, take provisions with you and go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Now therefore make a covenant with us. This is classic demonic activity. This is exactly how the devil works in your life today. It's like, oh, we don't mean you any harm. We, we, this is like, this is that person that you know that knows how to speak Christianese. It's like, it's like, oh, brother, yes, we all serve the same God. And can you take me to the dispensary? Because I'm a little low on blow right now. You know what I'm saying? This is what happens. It's like, oh, yeah, well, I love Jesus too. But hey, can I sleep with you? Oh, yeah, I go to church every year, Christmas and Easter. You want to go to the bar? Make a covenant with us. Because actually we're just like you.
this bread of ours we took hot from our provision from our houses on a day when we departed to come to you. But now look, it's dry and moldy. This is a flat out lie. They actually hunted around their camp to find all this totally trashed stuff so that they could make it look like they had traveled on a long journey. Church, there are going to be people in your life that are going to do this to you. They're going to fake that they are believers. They're going to lie to you. These wineskins, which were filled new and see they're torn. Look at these garments and our sandals. They've become old because of a very long journey. Yeah, a very long journey of yesterday. This <laughs> is classic. Satan is a liar. And he's the father of every single lie that has ever been told. And the word father there in John 8, 44 means more than what we would call father. It actually means originator or progenitor. It means someone who birthed that thing. It it isn't just that he's kind of like really good at it or a couple of his kids are good at it. It means that every person who's ever told a lie is born of Satan. Now, I know you're sitting there going, well, I told a lie. Yeah. And that lie came from the same origination point, the devil. Notice the lies that they told, five of them, very specific things, were from a very far country, 25 miles away. Matter of fact, they really wanted to run, they could make it in four or five hours. Not a really far country. They lied about their clothes. They actually put on the ratty clothes. You know, and I'm just going to tell you this. And we have actually had an individual do this at this church. I have actually seen people who've come to speak to bodies like ours, a church that has a fairly substantial congregation, whom when they show up in the parking lot, they have one set of clothes on, And they go into one of our restrooms and change and come out in something grubby. It's happened here. Because we got to pretend that we just, you know, we've been suffering for, then you find out that they've got a $45 million facility in Texas. That's from the pit. This type of lying occurs today. Oh, no, we, we, we don't really have anything. The spread of ours, it was warm when we packed it at home. Now look how moldy and dry it is. They actually lied about themselves. They gave the impression that they were important envoys, like on an official peace mission. They were actually soldiers. They didn't have any power. They didn't have any authority. Their whole point was to creep in. To waylay the things of God. They also lied and called themselves servants. They had zero intention of serving the Lord Most High. Or God's people. Their whole point was to get inside and to destroy. The enemy's whole point is not to make your life better. It is to destroy your life. But he will tell you, 
Oh, well, I just want to make your life better. So leave your spouse. I just want to make your life better. You know, life is kind of hard. You know, it's okay if you, you it's beer 30 right now. You need to lighten up a little bit. It's going to make life better for you. He's trying to destroy you. You know, if you just lie about that, they'll actually hire you. And then they find out later and you get fired and your reputation is ruined for your life. That's what the enemy does. He tries to sneak in. And once he gets in, guess what? He's really difficult to get out. You know what the the secret is? Don't let him in. Don't give him an inch. Why scripture reminds us, do not give the enemy even a foot place. Don't give him somewhere where his toe can go in your life. And finally, notice the audacity of what they actually say. It is amazing to me how convincing some people can be in in their desire to destroy you. I've seen it over and over and over again. I've had people look me right in the eye. We just had about two weeks ago. We had a a long story about how he got saved at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And how he served the Lord. And he fell on hard times. And he went to the East Coast. And then he came back to the West Coast. And then he went back to the East Coast. And he was persecuted for the name of Christ. And he came back out and then he couldn't get a job because he was a Christian. You know, can you help out with my rent and can you help out with my car payment and can you help out with food? And oh, by the way, I need to buy a Mercedes. No, it just went, it literally went on for like 45 minutes. Filled out three pages of information. We helped him. Guess what? He sent his friend the following day. Oh, well, Joe told me that you guys help people who have fallen on hard times because they've been persecuted. You see, people can be used by the devil. Even when their story sounds plausible. You got to be wise. You can't just simply listen to every word without listening by the spirit. Spirit, Why were the Gibeonites actually successful? There's an answer to this. Please look at verse 14. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. They didn't do a Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 thing. They did not seek the mind of God. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart your soul, your mind. Seek him. The Bible 
repeatedly reminds us that if you want to know what to do, talk to the one who knows what to do. Amen? But they didn't do that. We're actually told straight up, but they did not actually seek the counsel of God. What was their fault at the first time they went to AI? They did not seek the counsel. You get in the picture here? Victory, they sought and did the counsel of the Lord. Defeat, they did not seek the counsel of the Lord, they lost. They went back and sought the counsel of the Lord. They went back and defeated the same city. Now they're right at it again, and they still haven't learned their lesson. Anybody get it? Seek the will of God in everything. I think a lot of Christians just kind of blithely go, well, there's things I ask God for and there's things I don't really bother him with. That's really not a wise idea. Because notice this is something pretty simple. It's sandals and bread and wine. It's not like, you know, this, this isn't a monumental amount of money. This isn't, hey, can you send an army with us? This is, we need food and provisions and can we stay with you? But they didn't ask. And so Joshua made peace with them. The result of not asking God is you make bad decisions. The result of not asking God is you make bad decisions. It's that simple. Don't complicate this process in your life. A lot of Christians end up in trouble for very simple, very definable reasons. They don't pray. They don't talk to God. They just kind of throw it at the wall and see what happens. They just do whatever. And it's like, well, you know, I was thinking about asking God. Thinking about asking God and actually asking God are not the same thing. Now, some people's prayer life, matter of fact, I function this way sometimes. I'm just like talking to God the whole time. It's like, Lord, I just need your help right now. Just can you, can we just like put the phone on speakerphone and we're just going to talk throughout the day? That is a good way to do that. But there are times when you just need to be like, man, I don't know what's going on here, but this seems weird. Lord, what is happening? Because this looks one way, but I'm not sure. And made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. Now, if you know anything about the Jewish people, they were bound once they made a covenant to keep it. It was considered a dishonor to the Lord to break a covenant. So the moment these deceivers were able to get them to do something that was by the word of the Lord, they now had them. And so it is with so many Christians and their conscience. We forfeit our conscience before God. We make a decision to get involved with, and here's one of my favorites. Well, he's going to be a Christian one day. And I've, I've been praying to God, and I'm just going to keep witnessing. I know he's not right now, but he's going to get saved. And they get married anyway. What don't you get about do not be unequally yoked to an unbeliever? For what has light to do with darkness or Christ with Belial? You, you see, you're taking the actual word of the Lord, and you're saying it doesn't apply to me, and I think I know better than God, so I'm not going to actually ask you to bless this because I know you won't. I'm just going to do it anyway. Do you know how many horror stories I've heard 
they're almost untold of how many times I have listened to both men and women, well, I thought she would get saved, or I thought he would get saved, or I thought we would walk with Jesus, or I thought, I thought, I thought, I thought, and they never asked God the central question, God, is this your will for my life? Because they didn't want to hear the answer. Because they knew what the Bible said, but they didn't want to do it. Don't let that be you. It's a recipe for disaster. You'll end up living with the enemy. You'll have two different roads. And what I'm saying is, unfortunately, way too true. You'll end up in that situation to where you see things from God's perspective because you are a believer, but your spouse doesn't. Or even your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You end up in that situation. Now you have to compromise in order to keep peace. The person who knows the will of the Lord and doesn't do it sets themselves up for a very serious time of testing. God still loves you. He doesn't hate you. He's for you. He's not against you. And so he tells us, look, this is my plan for your life. If you want to be blessed, do that. If you want to be stressed, do something else. You, you see, they got impetuous. This is why they succeeded. They exchanged the truth for the lie. God said, don't do it. You know, when God sent them in, the book of Deuteronomy records that when they went into the promised land, they were not to live any, leave any of the Canaanites alive. They're going to fight. They're still fighting this particular group of people. There's still a war going on in Israel. There's a reason there's a West Bank and there's a reason there's Palestinian territories. There's a reason there's infighting. There's a reason there's a Gaza Strip. There's a reason because those are the remnants of these people. That's who they are. They still exist. And they're still causing a whole lot of problems for Israel. They were walking by sight. They were not walking by faith. And it's supposed to be the opposite. We walk by faith and not by sight. That's what Paul wrote to the, Corinth, the church at Corinth in chapter 5, the second book. He says, look, walk by faith. It may look one way to you, but don't believe just your eyes. Hear the word of the Lord. And then do what God says. They're kind of taking almost the intellectual approach, the spiritual approach, would have been something completely different. But they, they, we'll just think it through. Now look, God gave you a brain for a reason. Don't ever think that the Bible says or that I'm telling you, you should you know, put your head in a box someplace and never think again. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. But it does teach that your thought life is supposed to be governed by the Spirit. So your thinking is going to be stinking if you're not seeking the Lord. Amen? If you're not asking God, then you're taking the ability to actually change what you think and why you think it and how you think supernaturally by the same God that created the universe. You're denying his power to actually govern your thought as a believer. 
That's just silly. It's foolish. It's like the person who never looks at the owner's manual for something. It's like, okay, here's how this actually works. Well, we'll throw that away. It's like the Ikea furniture thing, right? Come on, admit it. How many of you toss the Ikea furniture? You just, the first thing you do, you huck the directions. So I can figure this out. I mean, it's just screws and holes and, you know, it's going to be fine. Then you find out there's one little step that happened like on page two of those directions you threw away. And it's like the whole thing will not go together at all, period. That's kind of us and God. God knows that one little place that's right there in the middle of your Ikea life that has to be done exactly at the right time, the right place, the right thing, and you're going, nope, not listening to you. And then what happens? Y'all, probably everyone in this room has somebody that you see that one piece of Ikea furniture and there's just something not right about it. It's like there's a shelf that's kind of sideways and it goes, it's like, what is that? Well, that's the one piece that needed to go in before you got to step 47. Your life is like that in Christ. God sees every single step in their order, and you can't skip them. If you do, you do so at your own peril. And he's saying, look, I don't want you to have this problem. I want you to have spiritual discernment. I want you to listen to me. And so if I tell you, no, you probably shouldn't do that yet. You shouldn't go there now. You need to forget what you think about this and listen to what the Spirit's telling you about it. You're going to skip an awful lot of problems in your life. Now, you may not have some of the things that you think you should have, but you're going to skip a whole lot of problems. So when you look at this passage, it really is pretty much the same old, same old, isn't it? Repeated mistakes and repeated sinful behavior always ramp up in consequences. Now, it doesn't mean that God is mean. doesn't mean that God is necessarily just flaming mad at you. It means he didn't get your attention the first time. In other words, they should have learned this lesson at AI, right? Because that's the problem. They did not seek the counsel of the Lord. So they should have gotten it the first time. They didn't get it the second time. They're on the third time. Hate to tell you this, we're going to see they don't get it this time either. And they keep repeating this process of not listening to God. They depend on their own senses, their own facts. They're going to make the same mistake over and over again. The will of God comes from the heart of God. You cannot know the will of God without understanding the heart of God. It's not just the mind of God, it's the heart of God. God has a reason why he wants you to be the way he wants you to be. His principles not only make sense to the mind of God, but they're actually going to be the path to blessing. But as far as humankind is concerned, and we're going to see this in our study through the Beatitudes, a lot of the things in the world are actually upside down in in their relative worth according to God. Humility brings you exaltation. Meekness brings you strength. You understand what I'm saying? And so the people here say, well, we'll just fight the same way the world fights. We'll just be smarter than them. Guess what? The devil's not dumb. 
And so not only were they not smarter, they actually fell into the trap big time. You don't want to go there, church. You don't want to be that way. It's very costly over time. Humility causes us to obey the Lord. We just say, yes, Lord, your servant hears. Here am I, send me. Tell me what you want me to do, Lord, I'll do it. Tell me how you want me to go, I'll go. Jesus actually told us that if we want to know the will of God there in John 7, then you'll certainly know it. The truth of the matter is, we can all be blind at times. Me included. So we're in it together. If you think about it, real ambassadors would have thrown away their dry moldy bread, right? Real ambassadors are not going to come begging to a group of people that they want to dominate. They would come with boldness. They would have said, we don't need anything from you. That's what real about. They should have known something was up, but they didn't even pay attention to the signs. They would have picked out the right attire. They would have shown their best side. They wouldn't have done this. And the reason that James says what he says there in, in chapter 1 and verse 5, if you lack wisdom, notice the key to gaining wisdom. It's really hard. Super difficult. If any of you lacks wisdom, what does it say, church? Let him ask of God. Woo! Novel idea. If you don't know, don't go. Ask God. Amen? It's that simple. It's not hard. And yet, how many of you, well, you know, I'm just going to do my best. God's not asking you to do your best. He's asking you to listen to him. You'll do your best after you talk to him and listen to him. It doesn't work the other way around. For a believer, doing your best is what people who don't know Jesus have to do. That's all they got. But for the church, we don't have to rely on just doing our best. We can rely on the king of heaven. It's like, Lord... I got, I have no clue what to do right now. I need your help. And notice James says, and he who asks, it will be given. So not only does God want you to ask, he promises to give you if you ask. This is kind of like, why in the world would you want to do it any other way? And the fact of the matter is we shouldn't. Moses had actually told the Jewish people, be careful not to make treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, for they will be a snare among you. Exodus 34, verse 12. So while they were wandering around the wilderness, Moses gives them this book that we call the book of Exodus, and he tells them, look, when you go into the land, be really careful. And the Lord has told us, when you go into this life called the Christian life, be really careful. What did Jesus say to the disciples? Anybody remember? Behold, I send you out as sheep amongst wolves. 
He didn't do it the other way around. I'm not sending you out as wolves among sheep. I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. You're at a disadvantage in this world because the world hates you and it's vicious and it wants to kill you. So in a very real sense, you need God to speak to your life. You need to know how to get around the packs of wolves that exist. You need to know how to navigate all the stuff in this world that's trying to take you out. But if you don't ask, you won't know. And so in their haste, Joshua and the Jewish leaders actually break God's law. And since their oath was sworn in the name of the Lord, which we'll see in verse 18 next time, it couldn't be broken. These guys won. They actually used God's word against them. Because they knew once they made that oath before God, it was over. Okay, now we get to stay. And there's not a thing you can do about it. Like Joshua, like Israel, we live in and behind enemy lines. We live in enemy territory, church. We live in enemy territory. This world is the enemy's territory currently. It won't always be that way. And Jesus has actually won the the war, but there's still a lot of battles to occur before we actually seize the victory, the final one, when Jesus comes for his church. Can't wait for that day. In the meantime, we live in enemy territory. Don't forget that. The enemy is going to try and lie to you just as he did to Israel. He's going to try and deceive you just as he did to Israel. He's going to try and get you to make covenants with the world just like he did with Israel. He's going to try and get you in trouble that's going to be really hard to get out of just like he did Israel. Don't fall for Satan's lies. Know your enemy. Seek the will of God. And when God speaks, be a doer of the word. He will deliver you from every evil. He promises that. Did you know that? No weapon fashioned against you shall prosper. Period. In him. Don't forget the in him part. When I'm walking in him... No weapon fashioned against me prospers. If I'm walking in my flesh, every weapon fashioned against me will prosper. Because I'll fall prey to the enemy's plans. So walk in the spirit. Don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And stay out of the enemy's plans. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Amen. Father, we are so grateful for the instruction of your word that you would care so much about us that you would remind us uh, of how dangerous this world actually is. And Lord, sometimes we wander around blithely and I I do believe that tonight there are people that are here and, and they have surrendered ground to the enemy. And we ask in Jesus' name that you reclaim that ground in their life. Pray that you would keep us from walking in darkness, fulfilling those desires of our flesh. Lord, but help us to walk in the truth. Lord, help us to walk in the spirit. Lord, we thank you that you are our deliverer, our strength, our shield, fortress, and strong power. You're the mighty one. 
You are El Shaddai, the hero God. The one that's mightier than all the enemies that have ever been arrayed against us. And so, Lord, we surrender again to your Spirit's work. We pray that you would instruct us from heaven. Lord, bless us as we endeavor to live out our lives in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.